episode number 552. My name is Minterdial, and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. This is a network that has been growing and growing, and I'm really proud to be part of it. Please go and check out their site and visit other podcasts that are available at evergreenpodcast.com. So this week's interview is with Felix Velarde. Felix is a serial entrepreneur with a long track record in the agency side of the business. He's currently CEO of the 2Y3X program, chair and board advisor, and partner and chief strategy officer at the AVA Acquisitions. He's also a celebrated keynote speaker and the author of Scale at Speed, How to Triple the Size of Your Business and Build a Superstar Team, published by Robinson. In this conversation with Felix, we discuss his book, The Importance of Creating a Good Company Culture, Establishing Appropriate Goals, governance, ambition, ethics, branding, and much more. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. And if you have a moment, go over and drop in a little rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Mr. Felix Velarde, or should I say Mr. 2Y3X. We've known each other through various means over the years, and we had a wonderful serendipitous exchange with uh, Sally Henderson, our mutual friend, and then um, saw your book, Scale at Speed, How to Triple the Size of Your Business and Build a Superstar Team, about which we'll be talking. However, in your own words, Felix, who are you? Who is Felix Velarde? Um, good morning. Uh, good afternoon, depending on where you're listening from. Um, who am I? So I am an accidental entrepreneur. I started my first agency because basically nobody would give me a job or I couldn't keep a job that anybody would give me. And, and it happened to coincide with the internet and being involved with, with, with various online communi uh, communities around music and falling in love with the idea that you could talk to people on the other side of the world um, instantaneously. It was amazing. And I had this idea that Greenpeace UK might be able to talk to Greenpeace USA for the first time, and that would be brilliant, wouldn't it? And then the web got switched on, and I happened to be uh, hanging around a design studio at the time, and so we started Hyper Interactive, and so, so I was uh, one of the first, I guess, um, digital mavericks. I had blue hair, um, mm -hmm. a chippy attitude. Uh, so that's where I came from, and then... Uh, I had six agencies, started six agencies, five of which were moderately successful, a couple of which were very successful. Um, one became the digital arm of Low Worldwide in the late 90s in an extraordinary um, deal. I think we got a multiple of uh, up to 12, um, let's say. Um, and then various disasters over the, over the years and ended up running an agency group. Um, and then kind of tried to retire about eight years ago, nine years ago. Um, wrote a book, started a, the 2Y3X program to help it, entrepreneurs like me, and uh, consider myself to be a very happy and very lucky man. Lovely. Well, 2Y3X, um, what is that? Uh, <laughs> so all the way through my career, I came up with funny names for my agencies that had double entendres or, or ways of being misinterpreted. 
Uh, and one of my uh, more recent agencies was called Underwired for that purpose. Um, but always, I've always been a, uh, uh, I've always uh, passionately uh, tried to find great positioning and propositions for my agencies. And then when I was running group, their agencies, and now that I I've chaired a bunch of agencies. So um, I always wanted to find the, the, the name that actually does what it says on the tin. And 2Y3X is a, a program for agencies uh, who are struggling to, to get past a growth barrier or growth plateau, one of the ceilings, and want to scale so that they can exit. And so 2Y, two years, 3X, three times the value or three times the revenue or three times the profit, whatever you want to set as a target. And then uh, it's largely um, or partly a target-based uh, program. But it's, yeah, does what it says on the tin. Indeed. Very, very nice for that. Let's talk about agencies just a little bit, because, of course, I have my my uh, experience with agencies and and to the extent that you deal with so many of them. And they are also nor normally helping other clients deal with their branding and such. Yeah. How do you describe the state of agencies, marketing agencies, branding agencies, whichever you want to call them, digital agencies uh, today? Um. So there's a kind of, there's two ways of answering that, two different perspectives. Um, there's the kind of uh, existential angst perspective, which is, oh my goodness, am I going to survive? The world is changing, AI, um, sales enablement, uh, and uh, the economy, and so on. There's, there's this kind of momentary, slightly myopic view of where am I right now? And, and those things need addressing. And so we work, we do a lot of work um, helping people address those kinds of things. But actually, the other way of looking at it is nothing has changed since J. Walter Thompson in whenever it was 1875. Um, agencies, by and large, do the same things in the same kind of way, using the same kind of frameworks for the same kinds of clients as they always did. And, and the thing that frustrated me, especially reading lots and lots of uh, good and bad business books in the run-up to um, uh, putting together 2Y3X and then later putting together the book Scale at Speed, um, was that nobody really teaches you that all of the stuff that is painful in running a business has been done before and addressed before and shouldn't be bloody painful. Uh, you know, we get taught, you know, we get forced to read Good to Great, which is a brilliant book, by the way, um, Jim Collins and all the Pat Lencioni's books are amazing. And we pick one kind of nugget from them and, and we pick out sort of, uh, you know, start with why and think about your motivation and stuff. Or uh, we pick out um, how to delegate well, you know, we pick out acronyms and smart and all that kind of stuff. And so we get taught one thing at a time. We very, very rarely get taught as entrepreneurs that there are systems for running businesses that work perfectly well. Thank you very much. And you don't need to reinvent the wheel. So for me, looking at it now from the outside, I see agencies as, uh, as spending 90% of their time trying to figure out how to do stuff that other people have already figured out. And 10% of their time uh, trying to figure out how they're going to address the future, how they're going to do better work, how they're going to be more creative, how they're going to engage their clients better, which is the important stuff. So, so, so I have this kind of ambivalence, this sort of, this sort of 
slightly polarized view of um, agencies. I think as an industry, really interesting time. This is really exciting. You know, how do you address um, the opportunities and threats of AI whilst keeping your staff? Because if you don't keep your staff and AI does it, who's going to buy your products? Because your staff's going to be out of work. Um, who's going to buy, buy the stuff that you're marketing for your clients, um, which is the, the kind of the Henry Ford problem. And also, how do you address the um, uh, the career advancement problem, which is we've got a bunch of experts at the top and we've got AI doing all of the work at the bottom. Who is going to be the apprentice? Who is going to be the trainee? Um, and how do you accelerate them onto a path where they can become experts and leaders and so on? So those two problems are they're the naughty ones, they're the interesting ones, and they're the ones that I think agency owners and founders should be spending the vast majority of their time addressing for their own businesses, rather than trying to figure out how to do the stuff that we already know how to do, and you can find in your book and my book and a few others um, uh, about how to grow and manage and build um, successful agencies and agency groups and, and, and you know, do your fantastic exit or change the world, whichever of those two you want to pick. I want to go Not back them. to something. It's good. I wanted to go back to something you said, Felix, a little earlier, which is you have these two ideas, you know, split personalities, quote unquote, about uh, about how the agency business is, and and specifically in the second one, you said that you know there's lots of things that haven't changed. I I, I have to push back on that to say that mm. it feels like the agency business has been completely upended in terms of the way things are done and the, the demands of clients and the opportunities for customers, for competitors. I have a, a friend in Paris who started a, an agency of sorts called EYEKA, E-Y-E-K-A, and his, the idea was to crowdsource or at least to, to use the world's supply of designers to answer your brand question, as opposed to having to go down to PBCs or Gray or whatever and see them in their office, huge expense, 15 people per uh, meeting, you know, give you the, the riot act as to, you know, how to do a brand and that we know everything. And um, and then the the way to, to do marketing is so much more complicated today in that now there's so many more channels to communicate with anyway so basically what i'm saying is i don't mm. see how it's easy to say that the agency business it hasn't changed over these these dynamic years well, i think as i say it's it, it's about which angle you look at so um and and by the way the the, the crowdsourcing of of ideas is not new I mean, alistair duncan's been doing it for 25 years um uh very successfully uh, and he ran Zentropy back in the day, if you remember. Um, uh, so the, the, these things aren't particularly novel. I think that the proliferation of channel, uh, channel, channels is quite new. But I remember, again, 30 or 40 years ago, going into Zenith and, and being astounded at the sheer vast number of magazines that they had to place stuff in. And they had to do the typesetting and the litho and all the rest of it. You know, that was just complicated in a very different way. We don't have to do typesetting anymore, right? The Phil Joneses of this world who grew up through typography and, and so on, um, uh, look back at those days of, of, of um, <laughs> you know, the smells of being in a print shop. Um, 
it was just a different kind of complication. Now it's just that we've got, you know, umpteen different social media channels, uh, but we don't have to deal with any of that legacy stuff anymore. It's just we've shifted the complication in, into a different dimension. The thing that hasn't changed is, by and large, agencies have a CEO who's the arm-waving arm ego type. They have an operations person who's the quiet in the background, uh, makes things tick type. Uh, you might call traffic, but you might call the COO. You might even call it an office manager, the, the role. Um, they'll have a creative director who's brilliant. And then you'll have a head of client services. And underneath the head of client services, there'll be a, set, a series of layers. So you have an account director who has three accounts. The head of client services supervises all the account directors. You have a group dire uh, account director who looks after eight accounts. You'll have an account exec right at the bottom who one day will become the cl client service. And it's a standard pyramid um, uh, model that limits the damage that juniors can do as they rise up the ranks. Um, and it's a very good way of teaching people how to do stuff. It's not very empowering. And of course, it is just based on the way the armies were run in the 1800s. So none of that's changed. You know, so the strategy director um, is out on a limb. They don't have staff because they're the brains, but that's that's what staff is in, in strategic army terms, right? There's the same old, boring, command and control, top-down, toxic, uh, largely male culture persists to this day. And, and, and if you're going to get me on my hobby horse, needs to be disrupted somehow. Well, that, that makes total sense. I, I was thinking that it hadn't changed because, well, that's what was needed. What I understand now is it hasn't changed and good God, it's about time to change. All right, I get that. We'll talk some more about that surely, but let's start talking about your book a little bit, which is a uh, scale at speed, which of course is on your um, your screen for those who are watching. Um, how to triple size your business and build a superstar team. Let's start with what was your motivation for writing this, and why didn't you want to keep it all secret? <laughs> um, the motivation for writing it was was slightly a surprise and slightly serendipity. So. Um, I had been running the program for a couple of years, I think three or four years. Um, so when was this? It was 2017, for a couple of years. And I was really passionate about it, I still am, um, because it's about empowering future generations' talent and, and giving them the, the means and the motivation to design the future. And, um, and so, so I was doing some podcasts, as you do, <laughs> Um, and uh, Lucy Mann at Small Spark Theory had just started a podcast and I'd met her at some dinner somewhere and she seemed to be really, really down to earth and, and lovely. And she said, would you be a guest? Because this sounds quite interesting. Um, and so I went on her podcast and we did this, this great recording and it was a one take recording, which was brilliant. There was no interruptions. There's no Felix sneezing in the background. Um, and... Uh, and at the end of it, she said, you know what? You should write a book about this. And I thought nothing of it. And then about a week later, I got an email from uh, somebody called Kate Barker. And Kate said, I listened to your podcast. Um, you should write a book. It, I'm a literary agent, agent now, but 10 years ago, you taught me at the Institute of Direct Marketing and yours was the only course that I remembered. Uh, and I think you should write a book. Anyway, so I started writing this book. And, I, and as you 
quite rightly questioned. I, I tried to figure out why I was doing this as I started assembling old articles and trying to get some kind of, um, you know, the, the writing process for me being completely, I was gonna say novel, but, um, uh, you know, I was new to it. I didn't know what I was doing. I, I downloaded all of the right apps and read a couple of books on how to write a book. And, and of course, as a consultant, I'd read or speed read about 500 business books. And I kind of realized that 99% of them are one idea and 75% hot air padding to get you to the, the magical 50,000 words. Because at 50,000 words, I was told by a friend, Tony Llewellyn, who's written dozens of books on coaching. Um, he said, at 50,000 words, they can fit your name on the spine. And I thought, oh, that's a good piece. Um, so I knew I had to get to a certain count. But I also knew that I didn't want a book that was all hot air. And that actually the program, the reason I started the program partly was because I wanted to be a chair of an agency or two. And I was at that point chairing, I think, five really great agencies, brilliant agencies. And they were going through the program and they were doing really, really well as a result of it. So I had a lot of knowledge and experience from that. But I'd also spent, as I said right at the beginning, you know, 20 years um, screwing up managing agencies and getting it all wrong and making, making all mistakes, sometimes five or six times. So I felt that I had quite a lot of knowledge, but I also remembered my days of, you know, the frustration of getting to two million in revenue and not being able to break through it and bouncing off this ceiling over and over and over again, and it being soul-destroying, you know, and eventually the agency would either go bust or I'd have to sell it just to get it financed or so that I could take some money off the table, um, or it would just linger on. Um, and I could never break through this. And so I'd, I'd started five agencies. One of the agencies was in Interact TV, and we very quickly realized that there wasn't that wasn't going to be an industry. But the other five, you know, I got, got them all to a couple of million and I could not break through. And by now, of course, I, I was, what, in my uh, mid-late 40s, I now knew how to do it. I had the program. I'd watched a, a dozen agencies in the group that I'd put together go through it. I'd been doing it with the agencies I was chairing. The program was doing it for um, agencies. So I knew what it was like the other side and what transformation you had to do to go from 2 million to 3 million, then 3 million to 5 million and so on. Knew how to do it by then. And so I thought, you know what? I'll just write a book about it because the worst case, a bunch of people like me who wouldn't listen to advice from outsiders because of our, you know, because we were big headed and we thought that we knew it all. And at least the book's there and they could read it and maybe they can break through and they don't have to go through the pain of trial and error on stuff that where there's prior art. And in the best case, somebody might read the book and say, well, it's a bit complicated. Let's get Felix in to come and do it. And so there, there was this kind of, you know, this, this I think my entire life is, is filled with um, kind of altruistic on the one hand, kind of trying to make some money on the other hand. And wouldn't it be great if we could merge the two things? And so that's where the book is. Well, I love the preliminary way you got into it through a podcast. Someone calls you, publisher both of whom knew you and therefore uh, sort of sent you the, the God's winds to make the book happen. Well, it's actually, I mean, Kate was brilliant because she, she waited for almost three years while I wrote the book. <laughs> um, and then 
Uh, and she gave me so much great advice. And I got some brilliant advice from people like Jim, Jim Stern, the Data Analytics Association, and um, Michael Nutley, who was the uh, editor of New Media Age um, and CMO.com and so on. They'd, they'd all helped me get this thing into shape. And then Kate was just brilliant because she, she really, really was critical. And my partner, Ina, was just like sort of kept rereading it, which was brilliant. Uh, and pointing out all the stupid mistakes and the repetitions and all the things that you get wrong. Um, and then finally, I delivered this manuscript to Kate and she went out and seven days later, Hachette bought it. So uh, Kate is entirely 100% responsible for getting the book uh, written in the first place, seeing it all the way through and then getting it sold to, to, um, to uh, you know, the biggest publishing house. So it was very pleasing. Be honest. Yeah, I can certainly understand that. So it, it struck me about the book, though, it doesn't feel like it was entirely oriented to people in agencies. It's more applicable to a wider group. How do you read that? Um, I think that's fair. Uh, again, it was a choice. I started off thinking, who am I to talk about other businesses when my entire career is about agencies? You know, agency founder, CEO, head of strategy, group CEO, um, agency chair, and and I'd only had a couple of other businesses. You know, I'd, I'd chaired a, um, a virtual reality software company and stuff. So, um, on the one hand, I was kind of thinking, well, am I really qualified? And on the other, I just thought, you know what, this, this all of these principles, everything that I'm talking about, applies to anybody who runs a business that doesn't have a warehouse. So I, I kind of fairly deliberately made it slightly more um, generally applicable. Right, so I, I do want to talk about why scale and why speed. And at the end of the day, you talk about being stuck at 2 million. And let's just say you have 10% profits. That seems like a pretty good life. And is there a need to go further? I mean, of course, you may not have had the profitability, but the idea of always having to grow, always having to scale and do that quickly, is, is that what it's about? Um, the quickly bit, no, it's not. The scale, um, yes, capitalism works on the basis of uh, continuous growth and continuous evolution. And if you don't, at some point, the industry will bypass you and you will be left behind with nothing. So you can you have to continually evolve. And evolution requires capital, even if in small amounts, and capital requires profit. Um, and so, uh, you know, if you want to do bigger and better things, uh, if you want to continually disrupt or continually innovate or continually survive, you need to continually make profit. And to my mind, the safest way of making profit is to make more profit than you did last year, because partly because inflation. And, you know, when I started selling for two million, that was that was, you know, that was you retired forever. Um, these days, selling for two million isn't you being retired forever because half of it's gone in taxes and the other half has been distributed amongst your peers um, and to pay off your mortgage and all the rest of it. And then you have to start again another one. So, um, you know, if, if inflation is two to eight percent a year um, uh, or whatever it is, I think stock market goes up at seven percent a year on average over very long cycles. Um, then you've got to at least keep up with that. Well, I I hear you. I certainly the inflation piece, of course, and all that. 
and I, I, I also hang out with people who are, are work with privately held companies where the pressure to grow at more than your famous 8% that you just mentioned or your whatever, you know, there's one very famous large luxury company that just grows at 7% every year and is very happy as such mm. and doesn't have the pressures to cut corners and do other things because they're privately owned. And I think and that so that's brilliant, by the way. I, 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 absolutely nothing wrong with it in the same way that I think that there are lots and lots and lots of different business formats that I really admire. Um, employee-owned trusts, for example. Um, I personally have never been able to figure out how to make that work because if you want to change, um, then it, it requires decisiveness. And if everybody owns the company, nobody wants it to change because they're quite happy with what it, what it is. And so getting, getting changed through a multi-owner process is much more difficult than doing it through two or three founders. Um, and I think that if you that I'm in the business of constant change, I'm in technology. But if I were making, um, you know, nice dresses, then it might be very different uh, handbags. Um, uh, and, and I think there's room for the whole gamut of different types and styles of company. I just happen to be an expert in the kinds of companies that do change, that are innovative, that want to be creative and that want to scale. And so the book is for people who are a bit like me in that. And for the people who don't want to grow, um, then that's fine. There are other books for those people. Mm. Totally well put, Felix. Love it. Um, how do you define success? I think that would be a, a fine little segue. Ooh, happiness. Hmm. Happiness. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I consider myself to be successful just on the basis that I am happy. I get to do the stuff that I want with the people that I want. I don't, I, I, I'm enormously fortunate that I can choose not to work with people who don't share my values. Mm. Enormously fortunate. Um, and I, I think being able to do work where you get to be able to change the world in the way that you want to is amazing. And, and so I'm privileged um, to be that. I haven't made 20 million quid. I would love to. Um, everybody buy a copy of the book. I think I make 41 cents a copy. Um, Ouch. <laughs> Go to the bank. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, 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 uh, money isn't it. I, th I used to think it was. When I was 25, I thought money was it. Um, but when I didn't make money, but, you know, when I, by the time I was 26, uh, I, th I think success is having a team of people that you love working with around you um, and being part of enabling them to do the stuff that they love to do, frankly. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain -brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast. Well, which brings me then to the this notion you, which you talk a lot about, which is the ability to set out a really ambitious goal. You talk about the 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 big, hairy, audacious goal, 
And, oh, that's Jim uh, Collins's phrase, by the way. It's... Right, but the idea of having a big goal, right, is yeah. is sort of is there. And and at one point you say, well, if you didn't make three times, at least you made two times over the mm -hmm. the goal that you had, and 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 so good. It's. It, I, I was wondering to what extent though that goal setting and the the comments that you just talked about with regard to success come into your conversations with other agency owners. All the time. I mean, 2Y3X is, is predicated on the idea that you set a set of goals three years hence, and you figure out what's going on in year three in order to make those goals happen by the end of that year three. And then you have to figure out what you're doing in year two in order to be able to get to the beginning of year three. And then you have to figure out what's happening over the coming 12 months to get to the beginning of year two. Then you do that by co-creation with a bunch of people in the in your agency or your company, uh, because co-creation is infinitely more powerful than telling people what to do. And um, so that those three-year goals are incredibly important. They're, they're the starting point and as well as the ending point, but they're the starting point for the whole methodology behind 2Y3X and Scale at Speed. And the, it, it sort of stems from some work by um, Dr. Edwin Locke, who spent the last 40 years or so um, working on something called goal setting theory. And, and his original notion was, if you set a reasonable goal, people will think, oh, well, I'll do that later. Um, if you set a really tough goal, then you will have to come up with a plan. And if you have a plan and you follow the plan, you're more, more likely to achieve the goal. Anyway, there's tons of science behind this uh, around motivation and superstars want challenge and, um, and so on. And uh, he's even calibrated how big the goal should be. And so we, we use a sort of a simplified set of, uh, of uh, or a simplified version of goal setting theory um, as the starting point for the strategy map that sits underneath the 2Y3X process. And, um, but for me, just setting a financial goal doesn't do the job. And the reason it doesn't do the job that I want to do at least is because if you just say, okay, well, we want, I want to exit for 10 million, and therefore, I'm going to have to be making uh, 2 million EBITDA to, to get the right multiple and after all the costs and after all the taxes. Um, so 2 million EBITDA and I'm at the moment, I'm at 300 grand EBITDA. So that's quite a challenging thing. And we'll put together a plan. We'll just go for that profit. Now, what, what you'll find is that there are infinitely easier ways of making 3 million profit or 2 million profit than running an agency. It's frankly, running an agency is pain in the ass, especially with all the clients and stuff and the changing landscape and the proliferation of social media and all the rest of the stuff that we've already talked about. So, um, so if it's just a financial goal, do you know what my advice would be? Go buy paper clips in China and sell them for a penny more here because it's easier. <clears throat> it's crap for the environment. Everybody work for, uh, who works for you will hate it, but you'll make your profit and jobs are good. So... Uh, for me, that doesn't do the, the, the job of creating a successful outcome. So I want in the goal setting and, and the way that, that 2Y3X works is you have your financial goal, yes, so that you can retire in comfort and go and address a specific uh, garbage batch or whatever it is you want to do. And then you have a culture goal. And the culture goal is what kind of place do we want this to be to work at? And so that might be 
Um, we want this to be the destination agency in the UK for the brightest, smartest graduates, or we want this to be the place where uh, the nicest people come to work, or we want this to be the place where um, people come to get the best skills uh, in the business and the best discipline in the business. Whatever it is that your vision is for a place to be, this, that's what we set as the goal. Um, and then finally, we want to, what kind of products do we want to sell? Because it's perfectly legitimate to sell um, cheap crap to people who need cheap crap, right? That's fine. Uh, or uh, just as equally as saying, well, we want to sell gold-plated shovels to, you know, Louis Vuitton. They're both equally legitimate. We just need to express it because when we express it, firstly, we start toward, uh, to get toward, somewhere towards a proposition. But also everybody knows in the company what we're supposed to be doing. And that's really handy. So you've got these three goals holding each other kind of in balance. You've got financial goal that says drive the, in this direction and make sure that we make a profit. Uh, you've got a, a culture goal that says, and by the way, make this an amazing place to work somehow. And a third goal, which says, and we want to win a bunch of awards or we want to be known for producing the best widgets or whatever it is. Because together, those three goals lead to what I would call the successful outcome. Yeah, with the... Um... The, the that Japanese model of, of be good at something, love it, and have a market for it. Zen, the ikigai yeah. is that's when they come. Yeah. <clears throat> right. So uh, you you talked uh, about values and creating this culture, and um, to what extent is a brand, the brand name, relevant? And I mean, to let's say that sounds like an obvious question, but. In my mind, the notion of brand has changed quite a lot over the past few decades. And, and certainly within the entrepreneurial world, I continue to see that brand is an afterthought. You know, it's like I'll put my name on the front or I'll come up with a tricky name, but nothing really more profoundly understood or lived by the remaining parts of the company. What, what do you think, especially in an agency situation is brand how brand is important for them it's interesting i think i mean i've done an awful lot of naming and uh, you know i've i've done propositions for some of the most famous agencies in the business um and and i love doing proposition development work love it um but but it's my kind of side hustle <laughs> so i don't do very much of it um i I used to think, I mean, I remember when I was first getting into marketing in my 20s and really, really getting stuck into brand, because I think my first few clients were people like uh, Hewlett Packard and Mars Confectionery Snickers and, you know, we're, we're big, 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 big brands and trying to understand how they ticked and, you know, looking at things like brand onions and McCann, what it, you know, all of this, this stuff and, and, and doing my time learning about brands. And the, what I discovered fairly early on is that whatever you are called, whatever this great name is, it will lose its meaning almost instantly. And, and you know, uh, and it'll acquire some other attributes. Um, and, and if you're lucky, it'll become a noun or a verb, you know, hoover. Um, but but if you're 
this is a white Collins Rutherford Scott that became WCRS. Who cares? I mean, it doesn't, it's meaningless, now, right? WPP, the most successful agency group uh, in the history of, of agency land, stands for wire and plastic products because that was the vehicle that uh, Martin Sorrell bought and reversed into when he wanted to list, right? They're meaningless. And so for me, brand is, what's your reputation? What do people know about you or think about you or think they know about you? And what, what sticks? And so for me, I think, you know, in my very early days in agency land, I just wanted to piss everybody off. I had blue hair. I thought advertising people were, were you know, they were in an industry that needed to be destroyed because the internet and people power and all that kind of stuff. And, and so I was fairly obnoxious and, and went around made, making quite a few enemies who are thankfully now friends. Um, but fairly also fairly quickly realized that um, actually you're probably going to be around for a while. And if you want to be around for a while, then you need to, um, you, you need to be consistent and probably not be quite so obnoxious as I was at the time. And, and I'm very proud of the reputation that I have. I haven't deliberately gone out to make it because I don't think you can as an individual. You're, you become known for being a certain type of person. And, and you, you know, it's, uh, somebody said to me once brilliantly that, that politics isn't very complicated. It's just what other people say about you when you're not listening. And I thought that was really cool. And it's the same with brand and, re and reputation. It's not about the stuff you put into it other than um, your actions. And so quite rightly, Exxon and Shell and all the rest of it have got terrible brands. They've got that, you know, amazing brand recognition, but, but you know, appalling uh, reputations because of the actions that they, they undertake, the corruption and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, nobody gets that, that oil license from Venezuela without being fundamentally and deeply corrupt. Um, so, and on the other hand, you have great brands that, that have a reputation for doing nice things and being nice. Uh, Patagonia is a great one. Um, and I've just discovered that Patagonia has got a, the, one of their flagship stores is next to Harvard University, which I think is brilliant um, brand association because obviously everybody at Harvard now goes in shops. And so, you know, so it's that, that kind of clever brand marketing works. But underneath it all, there are values. And you and those values of the human come through somehow. And when the, when the human changes, the values change. I remember when the body shop, um, you know, was run on values by Anita Roddick. And when they got bought and, um, uh, and then later when she, um, it, 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 the, the, the values change. And the associations change. <clears throat> it's like um, uh, Ben and Jerry's. You know, the second that they sold out, they became the sellout hippies, and the, and and everything changes. Well, that's I thought, these are personally, I th well, I I mean, of course, I look. I worked at L'Oreal at the time right. of the acquisition, so I knew a little bit about that. But Ben and Jerry's, I thought they were brilliant because they had the balls to tell Unilever that ad perpetuum they had they had to have. Uh, certain things kept uh, ad perpetuum, which someone had to sign off on before you made the acquisition. So I thought they were still a little bit ballsier than the majority of people selling of out. But, 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 you know, like everyone, every, we all have sold out at some point. Um, and all we can do about that is, is try and live up to your 
values and try and do as much good as you can um if, if that's one of your values well so the issue with brand uh, sorry brand and agencies is that you have this reputation story but i suppose it's hard to have your own brand i mean in in that you are working for a unilever a proctor a l'oreal a ford motor company and so on and these become your these are the brands you're working on as you're an accounting executive or something. Your brand within that would, if there's a real brand with real values, like you say you do, Felix, um, would suggest that most branding agencies would only work with certain companies according to who they are. Whereas in my experience, Felix, maybe part of the second bracket of, of agencies that we talked about earlier that haven't changed, they're like, I'll take whatever business comes in the door. Yeah, and there, there, there will always be people who don't consider to be yeah, anything but money to be the marker of or the driver of what they do. And, um, you know, without wishing it to get into politics, there are always people who are going to vote for the other side. Um, you know, and, and I'm in the Americas right now and watching people having arguments about voting for the other side. And well, so, and we, the Mexican presidency, you mean? Well, all of it, um, and and further up north. Um, well, that's that'll be later on. But the Mexican one, where you are currently, is exactly on target. On target, two women for once. <laughs> in one sense, brother. Yeah. Um, but in but, one sense, fair. In one sense, um, I don't. I am values motivated i associate with people who are values motivated um i when i sold my agency to low in the 1990s one of the first gifts that they tried to give us was nestle as a client and we said no um which probably lost me a couple of million quid um and it pissed an awful lot of people off because they were trying to be nice but they didn't share my values and it was my first lesson in do deals with people who share your values um and they were trying to be nice and it was a, an incredibly generous gift from their point of view and from our point of view as a as you know a bunch of upstarts in a, a studio in brixton um nestle was beyond the pale and we weren't going to touch it with a barge pole and and so the agencies that that come into 2y3x by and large share our values or at least closely proximate to them um and those that don't probably are going to not select this system anyway because it's a progressive system um, that addresses all the discount factors and creates succession teams and so on, but works by giving real decision-making uh, ability and capability to the next generation of future talent. Um, and one of the consequences is it liberates you so you can sell and leave. Uh, and that will increase your value, which is great. So there's all sorts of great things in it, but it does require a certain kind of the ability to say, do you know what? It's time for my ego to shut shut the hell up and pack itself away. And it's time for me to, figure, to, to let other people advise us and my team take responsibility for um, uh, taking on the, the project of growth. Because if the team takes responsibility for it, then they're going to be highly motivated. They're going to be being trained by these external coaches from 2Y3X. And 
uh, I'm going to be able to sit back and relax and start thinking about whether I want to open in New York or whether I want to do a charitable project or whether I want to end up doing an EOT in my agency uh, or become a, a, a B Corp or whatever. Um, and those things are liberate, liberating. But if you are the kind of command and control micromanaging Martinet, you ain't going to go for that kind of program anyway. So EOTs, employee, employee ownership, ownership trust. Mm-hmm. Um, two things I really enjoyed about what you said, or at least I wanted to pick up on one specifically in the book, which is this idea of values and, and the work you, you show how to sort of get down to the core values. And one thing I really applaud is focusing on just three values it's 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 that need to choose which is a little bit of hard work and then define what you actually mean by it and the second thing you just said which is you know look at the values and have some overlap as opposed to have a perfect overlap and i think that's true also with the way you should recruit individuals in your company what are your values and when you have that conversation at the recruitment level what are your values well mine are a b and c well i have b c and d all right, well, we have B and C together. The idea of trying to find complete overlap is uh, Pollyannish and, and, and doesn't allow for that diversity of thought. Yeah, um, but I think the other, the other point about reducing it, if you like, distilling it or, or, or yeah, uh, down is that by the time you get to three, possibly four core values that are shared by the, the core team and the agency, actually some of those values are quite broad. You know, integrity is a very broad value, right? That you, you could articulate creativity or um, owning it. They, they're very broad. And so it gives you a lot of latitude in the interviewing and recruiting process to get people who, who their idea of integrity is uh, always being um, uh, scrupulously um, uh, honest about the mistakes, right? For example, where somebody else's idea of integrity is um always being consistent and predictable um and both of those sit under the same sort of heading and those people are likely to be able to work very well together yeah i, I think they're that not a f- point values yeah, it's, a, it's a fair approach i would call it a very pragmatic approach because when i went through this type of exercise at scale what i thought was really important was to be able to define what we mean by a value and the way we define any of these lovely words like family or integrity or uh, whatever it might be you know trustworthy respectful is to define it as observable behaviors so that you know my version is observable so which by my extension means we're not encompassing all versions of it so that means that, well, your version of integrity doesn't match with mine, dude. Yeah. And have and that conversation. It's important to have it, you know, there's, there is an entire methodology in the book, and it's the methodology we use for every single client who comes into the program and all of the agencies that I acquire here in the States. Um, uh, it is, is about defining. And when we've defined sufficiently in a group, is then saying, okay, now take that out and turn that into the kinds of definition that you would put into a staff handbook, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, here's some good examples, here's some bad examples. Um, because we want to be able to hold people to account against our values. You know, if we're going to say uh, um, respect is one of our values, 
uh, respect for for other people's um, uh, time and space, right? As opposed to respect for other people's existence. So re re respect for other people's time and space. You know, if you're phoning somebody up at eleven o'clock at night with a crisis every three weeks, that's not respecting their time and space. So you can hold somebody to account on that. You can either um, recognize that that means that person doesn't share that value and then you can start making decisions about that person or you can do course correction both of which are entirely valid um personally speaking i can't imagine having anybody in my my consultant set at 2y3x who doesn't share our values um and, and so far i'm just trying to think back We've never had anybody um, working uh, at 2Y3X that hasn't exactly shared our values. Different methodologies, different ways of thinking, different backgrounds, different colors, uh, genders, races, you know, orientations, the works. I mean, and we are a very diverse company when you compare us to most consulting firms. And, 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 and that means for me is really interesting because it's, I've got, you know, our MD for the last couple of years, Mo, is brilliant. She was head of consulting at Adobe. She lives in Zambia and, and she ran 2Y3X brilliantly from Zambia for her stint of two, two years. She's gone now back to being a, um, a consultant at 2Y3X. Um, completely different mindset to mine, completely different uh, way of looking at the world, completely different way of engaging the world. Uh, and brilliant managing director. Um, and she goes about making decisions in an utterly alien way to me. Um, but her job as managing director, she had total power to do whatever it, whatever way she wants, because I know that she shares my values and I share her values. And so we can trust each other to come up with a solution completely differently, but that will be on value, if nothing else. It's funny, you, you do say, I think you say um, value-based selling. I, I think of it as values-based selling because value-based selling seems to be more about the buck. Oh, that, uh, that's Value-based selling is just a methodology. It's, it's the <clears throat> burglarization of spin selling, if you like. It's just how do you do consultative selling? Figure out what value you're giving, and that's very different to. Of course, I was I was just um, riffing on that. But um, now that you've just talked about Mo and and, and you had your experience of being the chair of, of several uh, agencies and going forward, the topic of governance is rarely addressed, hmm. and it it's not clear for me in general how to set down governance you have the the privately held you have those with pe backed vc backed or and or publicly traded and then then you have this um this issue with ethics and and very rarely are those if having been on a few boards is is the topic of ethics addressed on the board so just give us a little riff in the little time we have left to talk about what you think are best practices in terms of setting up governance for an agency or a smaller company, knowing that obviously the smaller companies don't usually have 15 people boards that are fully paid and meeting every month. What would you, what sort of advice would you provide for people to wanting to set up the right governance? It's interesting. And, and in fact, we've, we've gone through that process at 2Y3X as well. And we've, we've looked at it long and hard as I have a, um, an M&A company in Austin, Texas, and we've bought 
five agencies. Um, so we, you know, we look at that. It, it's, I find it really interesting because sometimes I've come, I've been in situations where I've been the one saying, um, we need to think about ethics uh, or this event, it's all white men. Um, and, and I've been battling against other people where that does not compute, where they, it's just not a factor for them. Um, going back to your, your your point earlier about companies that will take on you know Philip Morris tobacco uh, because they don't you know they don't have a set of guidelines. I work with companies that have sets of guidelines. I have I, I do work. The one of the first quarterly tasks in the program is figure out what everybody's core values are and turn that into staff handbook and mantra and proposition because. I think it's incredibly important that we know who we are and how we are, how we want to behave so that we can teach the people in our companies that that is the way that it is. And if you're on the wrong bus, you will be happier somewhere else um, and less disruptive and so on. If you go somewhere where you, you, you share their values, it'd be brilliant you know, that you can be, a, be an A player over there for us. I want to only recruit people who share our values. And so it's a very explicit part of the intake process or the recruitment process of whatever level it is. And we've just got new COO who's amazing. Uh, and we haven't an announced yet. So you know, talk about Watch it. Watch this space. Watch this space. Yeah, by the time this comes out, you'll know. Um, but it, I think that you do need to bake it into things like the staff handbook. I think that you do need to state that you will be judged based on your behaviors. And I think that you need to be absolutely clear about calling people out when they do transgress and figuring out what to do about it, whether it's correct, course correct, or, or um, move them on somewhere else. Um, and, I and I think that that's especially true at board level, you have to recruit your advisors, your non-execs, your chair, your um, the consultants that come in, the programs that you join, also need to go through that same filter. And as a small company, it's very easy to do that, provided that the founder has an external advisor who is prepared to hold their feet to the, to, that's a bad phrase. To the whole factor to the flame. Um, to hold them to account. And I think that, you know, I went for many years beginning my career without any external advisors at all. I thought I knew it all. Um, and, and how wrong I was. Um, so, you know, one of the things that, that I'd say is find a, a, a non-exec who shares your values and make sure that they call you out when you, when, when you deviate. I think it's really, really important. In terms of governance, I think, you know, we're, we're dealing with small enough companies, you know, our, our clients are a million to 10 million in revenue that actually uh, you're talking about very small boards and you're not talking about particular governance. You know, it's a miracle if they're doing board meeting, uh, board minutes um, uh, at all, let alone having external people saying, you know, uh, here's your remuneration, CEO. Um you know, I, I have yet to see that happening in agencies, <laughs> um, no matter how good an idea it is. So so I think it, doing it organically by intent is probably the only way that I've seen it working. Mm. Well, I, I certainly, in being pragmatic, I, I, I started a travel agency in my life. 
and we did not have any governance models and or any ethics at the time that was back in 1991 so it's not about being pollyannish or you know overly idealistic about it but i do think it it bears being talked about in the context of scaling at speed because if you know your objective is to scale at speed and and how do you face the uh, the example of Nestle, which, by the way, own 26% of L'Oreal, um, it, it has uh, a bearing on the output, you know. So, well, if we get that, we'll take our target, you know, but add a hit for our reputation, possibly, or our ability to look in the mirror. And then the other thing, just to add into it, is artificial intelligence. Mm. And even if you're small, today, AI will be used. And so the question is, uh, how do you apply any governance or ethical framework on on a, a generally what is a black box? Yeah, and it's it's fascinating. And, and so, so I was having a conversation the other day with. So we have two y three x works in quarterly modules. You do you and a module might be implementing a client satisfaction survey or a new way of recruiting people or. Um, uh, a risk register or something like that. And one of the modules that we um, uh, fairly recently started to do as a done with you service is uh, AI evaluation as a quarterly task. As sort of how do you do the transformation which is inevitably coming? And, and I think that, that there's a whole raft of stuff on ethics in AI um, at a kind of macro level. But I think at the, the micro level, so the agency level, again, the two markers for me in this conversation that I, I find really fascinating because I don't know what the answer is, as opposed to a lot of things where I, I've seen very good answers and so I can borrow them. This, I don't know what the answer is, but, but there are a couple of guiding principles. One is, um, as I think I mentioned before, the, the Henry Ford, who was toxic human, but actually, um, you know, invented quite a lot of interesting things. Um, but, but one of the things that he said was, I want to pay my workers enough that they can buy, they can afford to buy one of my cars. And now that, that in the context of AI is really important because if AI puts everybody out of work, who's going, uh, and AI is doing all the marketing for products, who's going to buy the products that AI is now marketing? because there won't be any, you won't have any money. So that's that's the first issue. The second issue is, uh, so that tends or might drive towards a solution that says, let's find an AI way of empowered way, way of working that allows us to retain our staff and continue to pay them at the levels that they are paid now. If those are the parameters, what does that mean our AI solution is going to be. And for me, that means drive up quality, don't drive down price. Um, Adam Smith and all that, you know, as we get into basic economics. And, and again, we're back 180 years or 150 years back to the, the, the start of the industry when the problems were the same problems as they are suddenly now with AI. Uh, so that's on the one hand. And the second piece is how, do we, how are we gonna create experts if there's no entry level? because we replaced the entry level for AI. Now that's the one where I don't know what the answer is. I have a, I have a set of solutions for the first question, which is what, what we deploy in, in 2Y3As. The second question, that one I haven't cracked yet. And I don't think anybody's successfully cracked yet. And, and I'm reading all of the interesting writers, Azim Azar and people like that, and Rob Lemon, you know, some, some, some 
really interesting thinking going uh, on uh, on about it. We're we're in a position in agency land where we can talk with, and you know, I've been around long enough to know a bunch of real experts, uh, and it's a fascinating conundrum. Um, and I have a feeling that the solution is going to bubble up from the bottom, from these future generations who we're supposed to be empowering, and not come from the likes of us with our gray hair and our um, uh, long perspective. Um, and so again, it comes down to let's empower the people who the brightest and the, the best of our future generations to come up with an answer because their answer is likely to be much better than my answer or your answer or our peers' answers. Yeah, you were um, what you were talking about has a very strong parallel with the journalists, where entry level journalism working at a little stump in in a small village newspaper is the way to learn to get your teeth sharpened to end up at the New York Times or somewhere else. However, those jobs are all being usurped by AI and such, where the business model doesn't allow for it anymore. So, same kind of problem. You should guys talk together and deal with that one together. And the other thing that makes me think of is um, in terms of what solution is out there. Well, I certainly think that in business schools and in business today, still, we are, uh, I consider myself of that because I went to business school as well. And we're, we're not known for being particularly empathetic. We're not known for being particularly service-oriented, service to the others. We're more along the lines of being an egotist, a narcissist. It's all about me with rather questionable ethics. So I think if there's a solution, it's also to be found in starting by rewiring the way we teach students to do business, as well as hopefully have some better examples in business on how to do it. Last question for you, Felix, is um, scale of one to 10. A 10 being the optimal best and zero or one being uh, horrible and, and the worst. Marketing as a force for good. My, my instinct is to say marketing is neutral on that because it's a broadly, it's a reflection of the market <laughs> by definition. Um, uh, and the market is driven some by, you know, people who, people who are values driven um, and some people who are values driven in a, a different political or, or progression direction and people who have no values at all. It's a broad spectrum. Humanity is a broad spectrum, whether we like it or not. And marketing is just a re reflection of that. There are people like Lazar Jamic and Paul Kitkat who are teaching ethics in marketing and who are writing books about it and who are trying to remind our industry that we do have enormous influence on uh, brands as well as the public. And I think that those people are, are uh, to be applauded and there should be more. I think people like me who write books about how to do things in a progressive future facing way um, have their role to play and those are really important too. And you know I, I've been a I've been a lecturer and teacher at Hulk Business School, for example, uh, for M MBA students uh, for years. and and 
I think it's very important that you teach people that there is a values-based way of running businesses. Um, but, but overall, you know, we are a necessary voice. Are we going to win? No. Uh, is the other side going to win? Uh, not if we're still around. And, and so there's responsibility in that. On these fine words, Felix, um, how can anybody get in touch with you, track you down, buy your book? What's the best way? <laughs> Uh, buy the book in all formats uh, at Amazon and Waterstones and all the other bookstores. Um, the second edition is just about to come out, I think April 2024 in uh, the US. It's already out in the UK and Europe and India and other places. I think it's coming out in Chinese in September. Oh, um, uh, which is going to be interesting because obviously I won't know where the typos are. <laughs> um, uh, so please do buy the book. Uh, hopefully it's interesting. Uh, 2y3x.com is where you can find out all about the program. You can do self-assessment tests and you can figure out what the cost is and all of that and, and what your quickest wins are at 2y3x.com. And if you want to get in touch with me, either hit me up on LinkedIn, um, uh, linkedin.com slash in slash agency chair um, or Felix at 2y3x.com will get me. Lovely. Felix, muchas gracias. Thank you, sir. Have a lovely day. Stay in touch. Thank you, Minta. Lovely to see you. So a really heartfelt thanks for listening to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show, please remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast service. As ever, ratings and reviews are the real currency of podcasts. And if you're really inspired... I'm accepting donations on patreon.com forward slash Minterdial. You'll find the show notes with over 2,100 blog posts on Minterdial.com on topics ranging from leadership to branding, tech, and marketing tips. Check out my documentary film and books, including the last one, the second edition of Artificial Empathy, Putting Heart into Business and Artificial Intelligence that came out in April 2023. And to finish... Here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me, precipitating the danger to feel Anticipating the thrill of your intellect Maybe I tell myself There's no use in me lying I'm a convinced man building an urge I'm a convinced man to live and die submerged A convinced man in the arms of a woman I'm a convinced man, challenge my fate I'm a convinced man, competition's innate A convinced man, in the arms of a woman Despise revenges and struggle with deceit Live for the challenge so life's not incomplete 
What's wrong with challenge? I know soon we all die. I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me, precipitating the danger to feel free. Trust in my reason and let me show you why. I'm a convinced man practicing my lines. I'm a convinced man here in these confines. A convinced man in the arms of a woman. I'm a convinced man admit to the test. I'm a convinced man. I'm ready for an arrest. I'm a convinced man in the arms of a woman. Of news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We, we out. out.